0: John chapter 14, and we're going to look together at the first, the first seven verses together here this morning. John chapter 14, verse number 1, the Bible says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, if there's a central idea of this text, that's it. You believe in God, believe also in me so he is, he is now setting the tone for everything this conversation is going to be with, between Jesus and his disciples. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him." Um, yesterday I was watching. Um, I got home, got back from the church, and had finished dinner, and and kind of went upstairs and started watching um, what was left of uh, of a big speech yesterday at uh, a rally. Uh, Trump was uh, pre- was preaching. Uh, was speaking at a rally. Uh, his his style's a bit more of a sermon than the uh, than, than anybody else. But you watch him preach, and I love the the America first message he brings. I love that. I love the uh, you know pro pro liberty pro freedom uh, you know uh, arguments he makes or or declarations he makes mostly. Um, I, I liked the whole thing, the whole you know a, approach to just america first i haven 't heard that in a while it was we 've been without it for for a few uh, terms, and so it was just nice to hear. I enjoy hearing it and we were kind of wrapping up the thing you know we, we caught just the tail end of it or whatever, and so we were just listening to the end of it and, and uh, he gets done and then steps back and, and starts to look around and talking to people or whatever and it 's during that time you know the camera 's still on him at the bottom is running this little chiron uh, that runs across the bottom of the of the page there. And my, my one of my sons says, "Hey, Dad, did you see that?" Son, I'm, I'm watching. I'm watching a dude shake hands. I mean, come on, that's kind of important to watch. And I don't know why I didn't give it my first attention. But by the time I looked at it, the thing had already scrolled right on off the page. And I said, "What was he?" Goes. Did you see that thing about the aliens? I said, well, that's weird. No, I saw our president. That's not an alien. In fact, he's, he's got a big message about that. You don't, you don't, anyway. And at the bottom of the thing, it said this, it come back around. A- and it was right there on the screen. In fact, I had to look it up. I, I wanted to make sure I was seeing what I was seeing. And sure enough, Newsmax had an had, uh, had uh, article. And on it, this was the title of the article, right? NASA Funding Search for Alien Civilization. NASA is funding search for an alien civilization. They haven't shot a rocket in 50 years, but they're going to look for aliens now. It just blows my mind. That, that's the, that's the, the thing that is in front of them. In fact, it reminded me of another article I would read just about two years ago. And I read this article, and it, it kind of blew me away, the, the focus of the article. And, and, and so I'll share just a little bit of it with you. It, it said this, Scientists have now turned their focus for the origin of life on Earth to the stars, that that's that's what scientists are doing now. They have stopped looking for billions and billions and billions and billions of years to explain life, and now we are looking to the stars to see what could have brought life to the Earth. And in the article, the whole kind of idea was they were trying to float out there was that maybe. It you know, evolution didn't begin with just you know one little speck. Maybe life was seeded on Earth by an alien civilization. You have got to be kidding me! Is this how far we will go out of our way to avoid the conversation about a a designer, a a a God in heaven who has made Earth? We will go not not billions of years back. We will go to an entirely different planet to avoid the idea that maybe God produced everything that's on this earth. We will go way out of our way to the point where we would give credit to alien races for producing life on earth. Can I tell you, there is a new breed of evolution on the scene. And that new breed of evolution is deny God at all costs, even if you have to read a comic book to get it. And we will do anything we can to deny God. The problem is, is the reason we have to deny God is because we cannot find the meaning of life apart from him. In fact, this is how the article concluded from just a couple years ago. It said this. Trying to make contact with this source, one scientist was asked, why should there be a push for the stars in the first place? And this is what he said. If we discover Who they are, we will discover who we are. If we discover who they are, we will discover who we are. You see, there is a hunger in the heart of man to find what life is all about. The meaning of life is so strong that we will go to the greatest lengths possible to secure for ourselves some kind of meaning. In fact, entire... Uh, cults, and frankly, even Christian religious ideas today being espoused from, from pulpits. Can I tell you, there is heresy coming from pulpits today that push the idea that you need to find out who you are as some form of narcissism in the Christian church, and it has to push man to find out who the, what the meaning of life is. I tell you, the meaning of life is not a what, the meaning of life is a who, And we find in our text here today that Jesus is dealing with this very endeavor. You think of the lengths that man has gone to to find the meaning of life. You consider one of the greatest paid, I I want to be careful there, I'm not saying he's the greatest, one of the most wealthy or one of the highest paid fighters in our day, at least from my childhood, was a man named Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson... uh, Kind of roared on the scene. He was a big, huge deal, and he just had this uh, drama about him, this dramatic way about him, and uh, and really, honestly, you know, probably one of the greats when it comes to boxing. And when it really comes right down to it, you would think a man who has that high of of, um, of success, that a man who has the kind of wealth that he had come across, you would you would believe that maybe he has a grasp on the meaning of life. The But however, he says this, okay, so in 2003, Mike Tyson declared bankruptcy, one of the highest paid fighters of our day, and he had to declare bankruptcy in 2003. When he declared bankruptcy, he owed $309,000 to a stretch limo service, (laughs) $309,000 to a stretch limo service. I've been in a limo one time, and I got to stick my head in, and then it had to come right back out he owed $309,000 to the service a year earlier so back in the records they said one year before mike tyson spent $174,000 on one white gold chain necklace with 80 carat diamonds on it in he also that same year spent $140,000 on two white Bengal tigers he spent 1.5 million in one afternoon when he bought four Bentleys, four, they're automobiles. It's a, it's a big, expensive car. 1.5 million dollars on Bentleys in one afternoon. The staff at Versace in Caesar's Mall in Las Vegas said they'll never forget the time that Mike Tyson and his entourage left their shop with a quarter million dollars in merchandise. In 2005, he owed his creditors, $30 million. One of the highest paid fighters of his time, he was in debt for $30 million. After an interview with his final defeat to to journeyman Kevin McBride, he asked this question to the interviewer. He said, who am I? And not just because of the punches to his face. He just asked the question, who am I? What am I? I don't even know. Mike Tyson went on to say, I am just a dumb child who's been abused and robbed by lawyers. I'm just a fool who thinks he's someone. You see, the meaning of life will never be found, will never be satisfied by the gaining of things and chasing after more of this life. It was our Savior who said, that a man could gain the whole world and lose his own soul. And he asks this question, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, it is possible to pursue after the meaning of life and never grab a hold of life. Jesus introduces himself by this phrase, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the, the conversation in John chapter 14 that we read just a moment ago actually begins in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, in verse number 33, we find the disciples speaking with Jesus, and Jesus, in his usual way, is layering his truth as a Jewish teacher would. He is layering, layering the idea that he wants the people to understand principle by principle, and so he does this even with his disciples. Beginning in verse 33 of, of chapter 13, Jesus speaking to his disciples says this, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, ye cannot come. That must have been a little offensive to the disciples, that they have been following Jesus now for better than three years. They have been obeying the command that we found all the way back. Remember, Jesus approached the disciples with this one statement, this one promise, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. So from the very beginning, the idea of the disciple was to follow Jesus. Now Jesus in John chapter 13 says, hey, there's coming a time where you won't have me anymore. I won't be around. You won't get me. And then just like he said unto the Jews... He had already, To all those others who didn't follow, all of those who didn't sacrifice, all of those that didn't give up homes, all of those who didn't give up their jobs, all of those who didn't give up their livelihoods, all of those who had rejected the idea of Jesus, Jesus said to them, I'm going to go away and you cannot come with me. And the Bible says the same way he said it to them, he said it to the ones who had chosen to follow him. You can't come with me. That had to be offensive. That the disciples now had given up all of this and Jesus is going to Bail. He's going to bail before they ever conquer Rome. And by the way, that was still the plan. All the way up until the night Jesus was betrayed, Peter was carrying a sword around for the purpose of storming Rome. How do you know? Well, because he cut off the high priest's ear when it was time to do this thing. Can you imagine, Peter, at the night that Jesus was captured, you know Peter had to get pumped. Man, it is time I brought this sword. It was heavy, but I carried it anyway because I was ready to take Rome. And Jesus keeps sticking people's ears back on. We're never going to build a revolution. Like this. The reality is is that they had this idea that Jesus was going to storm Rome and establish a kingdom like the Messiah was promised to do. And he was going to do what the Messiah was supposed to do. He was going to come. He was going to beat Rome. He was going to establish the Jewish people as God's people. And all the while, Jesus had been teaching them. Jesus had been training them. Jesus had been walking them through this thing and reminding them, no, 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 it's not going to be like you think. No, 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 my ways are higher than your ways. And, And he's teaching them and training them. And they just didn't get it. They didn't understand. They didn't put it together. They hadn't grasped that Jesus' plan might be different than their plan. So now Jesus is saying this crazy thing about, I'm going to go away and you can't come with me. All the questions begin to start. And you can imagine the, the craziness that would have ensued, all the fears that would have come up in their hearts. You say, how do you know they were afraid? John 14.1 says, look with me, let not your heart be troubled. He said, calm down. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't worry. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Let not your heart be troubled. What was he doing? He was, rea- he was responding to their reaction. Look at verse number 36. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou cannot follow me now. But thou shalt follow me afterwards. You will follow me. You just can't do it right now. You're going to follow me. So he has told them, where I'm going, you can't come. But where I'm going, you will come eventually. So he's established two truths by the time we hit chapter 14. In chapter 14, he begins to fill in all the picture for us. He helps us see everything that is being described here, right? So he goes into chapter 14, and what does he describe? Let not your hearts be troubled. So he's he's going to calm their hearts down by filling in the details of his plan. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions if it were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also so there's the plan god has laid it out in front of him. jesus has explained it to him okay I'm going to go away. You can't come with me. We don't like that. We get freaked out when you talk about that. We panic a little bit. We lose our minds, and then you have to calm us down. And he tells them, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you in my father's house where there are many mansions. You're going to have a place. It's your place. You'll belong with me. I'm going to come back and get you, and we will never be divided after that. So very simple, but he is explaining the plan to some panicking disciples it's in this plan then that probably some of the most important questions man has ever wrestled with starts to be wrestled with. Here Thomas, you know, it would leave it to a guy named Doubting Thomas to ask these kind of, and by the way, I don't know why we call him Doubting Thomas. You do one thing wrong and you get labeled with that forever. Can you imagine what that would have been like if we had just picked the, picked the thing you did at five years old and called you that for the rest of your life? Boy, that would have been bad. No, no, we know that Thomas here is wrestling with the same concerns and worries that every other disciple. And frankly, if you and I were in the same position, I probably would have been feeling the same way. And here, Thomas is wrestling this out, and he tells us, look with me in verse number 5. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. In other words, we have never been there. That's not a place we've been to. Like You can't describe it, turn left at Mount Sinai and you'll find it. How are we going to get there? And then he goes on. He says this. Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? How can we know the way? What a powerful question. How can we know the way? What's beautiful here is that this is exactly what every one of us needs to hear today. How can we know the way? How can we know the way to an eternal life? How can we know the way to heaven? How can we know the way to the break uh, and, and the shake-up of, of the rigmarole of living, you know, being born, living a little while, and then dying, and then bleakness afterwards? How, how, can we, how can we change the meaning of this life to extend on into eternity and give value to the years that we live here? What, what, what is the way to do this? And Jesus, as so beautifully, you already know it. We read it together here. He steps in. In my mind, I imagine that, you know, if I was Jesus and I had control of, like, the elements, I would do things like like this. You know, it's kind of theatrical in my mind. I imagine Jesus kind of stepped back and threw his arms back, and, you know, the wind kind of blew, and it blew his cape back or his robe back a little bit and blew his beautiful beard in the wind. You know, something like that. And he's standing in the sun, you know, kind of positions perfectly over him, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I I doubt that's how he did it, but that's exactly how I would have done it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying, I'm the way. I'm the one. I'm the path. And by the way, that's what the way is. Jesus is the way. The idea of the way is a path. That's what he means here when he says, I'm the way, I'm the path, I am the route, I am the way to get to eternal life. In other words, through all of their confusion, through everything they are chasing and hoping to lay a hold of, all of that is gained through Jesus Christ. The meaning to life, the the, the hopefulness of eternity, the, the the desire to see something happen that will last beyond the years we have here, all of that is accessed by one person, and it is Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way. I'm the one. You don't have to go anywhere else. You don't have to search anywhere else. You can know that I am the way, and you can find the Lord through me. You can find God the Father through me. I am am the way. By the way, those same disciples that didn't get it, by the time they find the resurrected Savior, when they see Jesus in his resurrected form, everything changes. Just a few years from this, Peter is going to get up and declare. In fact, it's not years. It it really, honestly, is months after this. Peter gets up and declares this in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby ye must be saved. You see, Peter got it. Peter understood. Hold on. No, 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 no. The the way to God is not a path that we have to reach out for. The way to God is a person named Jesus. And what is heartbreaking is that there are many still today who are living their lives as if they are trying to find the path. They, they seem like blind people who are groping in darkness and reaching out and trying to find something that'll provide meaning and something that'll provide hope and something that will give their life value. And I tell you today that Jesus declares it, I am the way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way to God. He is the way to eternal life. He is the way to heaven. Jesus is the way. Not only that, he says, I am the truth. And by the way, I love that he says the truth. He uses this definitive, definitive it's a word, uh, definitive art- article. I'm going to use the English eventually. It is a definitive, de- oh, the specific article, <laughs> the. He uses the word the, which means there is no other. I am the way. You're not going to find a way out there somewhere. I am the. He says, I am the truth. And I'm so thankful that he uses the word truth here. Because what Jesus is doing, when he says, I am the truth, Jesus is elevating his position in the mind of his hearers. He is moving himself into a higher position. Understand here that in 1717, John 1717, not the year, John 1717, Jesus looks and says, in just a couple of chapters, he is going to tell them in prayer to his father, he is going to say, sanctify them through thy truth, Thy word is truth. So Jesus prays to the Father in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What is happening here? Jesus is now saying the word of God, God's word is true. But in John 14, he has declared himself to be truth. What has Jesus done? He has elevated his position to be equal to the very words of God. That's his position. He is positioning himself as God. By the way, it is not a small point that Jesus is God. I don't want to fly by that. And I love the fact that John John the apostle understood this because as he introduces a John like John chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What he was doing is he is pointing out john seventeen seventeen We are going to declare that the Word of God is truth. Oh, by the way, I also know that in John chapter fourteen, I introduced Jesus as truth. You need to know he 's the Word, Jesus is the Word. Jesus is elevated to the very position of the Word of God, in other words, Jesus is laying claim to the authority of God there 's this weird doctrine out there today that says that God laid aside his, that Jesus laid aside his godliness to come down here and be man that 's baloney there's no way about it. Christian doctrine for millennia has been that Jesus was fully God and fully man it, it, you say well i don't understand how it works. How can you be two hundred percent? How can you be a hundred of one thing and a hundred of another?" that's not on me to decide. The answer is Jesus figured it out and he did it. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. He was fully and completely equal with man and fully and completely equal with God. He didn't set aside his, his, his Godship, his divinity for anything. He was fully and completely and wholly God. And so we find here in Jesus' own words, he is helping his disciples understand this is not a normal teacher. This is not a rabbi. This is not a guy who can do magic tricks on the weekend. This is God. These are his words. We are looking at the very word of God come to flesh. It is Jesus. You see, Jesus is positioning himself by saying, I am the word. And by the way, that's what he's been doing this whole time. We are on the sixth of the I am statements of Jesus. Every one of these were the declarations of who Jesus is. They were definitive arguments of Jesus. In fact, that's the way the Greek would have understood this phrase. This, this text, John, is not written in Hebrew. It is written in Greek and Aramaic. And the way we would have understood that, if you read it right out of the Greek, you would have understood it's something like this. When Jesus says, I am, he is saying, Myself, me, and only me is the way, the truth, and the life. I am completely and totally, all by myself, the way the truth, and the life. It was the definitive nature of Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life. The way the Hebrew would have heard it, the way the Hebrew person would have understood this is even, it, 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 it's all full of the same kind of beautiful picture on the other side. To the Greek, he was saying, listen, I am the only way. And then we come over here and we hear Jesus saying to the disciples, or yeah, to the disciples, he's saying, I am. And that phrase, I am, was to say, I, I am the same God introduced to Abraham and Isaac. I'm the same God who was introduced to Moses. I am the I am. I'm the self-existent one. Jesus is not laying claim to being a way or one of the ways. He was laying claim to the rightful position as God to be the only way to the Father. In other words, there aren't a bunch of ways to get to God because there was only one definitive God named Jesus who allowed us access to the Father. So the next person who says, well, you can go to heaven by this religion, great. Then it better be God there. Because if it's not God, it's not another religion. God himself showed up and said, I'm the way. It was Jesus who showed up and said, I am the way. By the way, we spent the first couple of months of this year teaching on the doctrine of Trinity in our Bible classes, so please don't confuse the idea that I'm saying Jesus is the one God as if he is one and alone. We understand he has a Father and a Holy Spirit with him, but we do recognize Jesus was not trying in any way to diminish his own position as God. Jesus is the Son of God, God in flesh. So we find here, by the way, I, I hope you believe all of that. That way was a little quiet in here, and I'm used to you guys being a little more vocal. But the reality is, is that when it comes right down to it, we can recognize God in the flesh is Jesus. And Jesus is laying claim to this when he says, I am the truth. I am the truth. In other words, he is saying, I am the full measure of righteousness. I am the full measure of holiness. I am the full measure of all that is right. also, it means he's the full measure of all that is wrong. Jesus is the full measure of everything that's wrong. If you, if you have, a, if you have a, a ruler, then you don't expect your ruler to be right fifth, you know, 11 out of 12 times. I don't expect if I had a, a measuring tape up here today and I went out and measured it and it got real wonky about 15 feet out, all of a sudden my tape measure starts measuring funky measurements no, you wouldn't trust that thing at all, would you? No, it, because we recognize that when something is the measure of what is right, it better also be the measure of what is wrong. It measures when something's not working or when it's not fitting. That tape measure has to be a specific way because it is fully right. It means it is also it would also show the error of everything that was wrong. And so we find with Jesus. Jesus is not just the full measure of what is right because he is perfect. He also shines on all that is wrong. So we find Jesus. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. Also, he goes and says, I am the life. Jesus, by the way, has been telling the disciples all about his impending death. Can you imagine that? I'm leaving. I'm going to die. I'm not going to be around here. You're not going to see me anymore. Oh, by the way, I'm the life. You're the life. What in the world? How do you die and be the life? You don't get to do both. Pick a lane. And here we find the disciples hearing Jesus once again lay claim. And I say once again because you'll remember, as we saw last week back in chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, Jesus is the measure of life. He, was, he is going to be die, dead in a, in a cave in just a couple of chapters. He will be dead in a cave. And by his own volition, that still heart will begin to beat. Those those veins who are sitting stagnant and done for three days will begin to pump blood again. Those lungs that lay deflated will be full of oxygen again. And what is it? The simple choice of Jesus to open his eyes and breathe again. You and I will never be able to defeat death like that. Jesus says, I'm the life. I'm not waiting for resurrection to get here. I just am. The resurrection. When he says, I am the life, he's not only talking about the power to give life, he is dealing with the fact that it is deliverance from anything that would produce death. Jesus is the deliverance. He is speaking of deliverance when he says, I am the life. Consider with me, we won't go to John 19, 14, 19 right now, but the idea is, is that when he speaks of his, his resurrection, when he speaks of being life, he is speaking about delivering all of us. not a political or social deliverance like the Jews were waiting for, but rather a liberation from the tyranny of sin and death. We no longer have to be bound by fear of sin. We no longer have to be bound by fear of death because Jesus is life. Therefore, our lives have meaning beyond what sins we can participate in and what bondage we're trapped up in. Our lives now have meaning of liberty and freedom and holiness and righteousness. We get to live an entirely different life than we had access to before Christ. And all of this Jesus defines as real life. You can live a real and whole and complete life. Jesus is declaring himself to be, the I am the Holy One of Israel, the God of creation, the Lord, the the self-sufficient one. And in it, he has declared, and by me only you will find life. Of course we know. According to scripture, the disciples don't get it. They will get it. Don't worry. There's something about the resurrection that teaches the disciples what they needed to know. But how did they live it when they did get it? And by the way, this is how discipleship works. Discipleship doesn't work. You hear it one time and all of a sudden you get it. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is people who mean well and try hard and still foul it up. And that's what the disciples did. So often we beat ourselves up or we beat up other Christians because they didn't get it the first time they heard it. That's such a damaging way to live. Can I tell you, Jesus gave room for his disciples to not get it. But how did they end up getting it? They got it by listening to the word of God being taught. Sometimes we, we set the value of hearing God's word on a Sunday or a Wednesday. We, we devalue that. We set it down on the bottom shelf by saying, "Yeah, know, we do it every week. We well, actually, it's part of your discipleship to hear the word of God. And that's what the disciples did. They heard the word of God declared by Jesus. Of course, we, part of our discipleship is being in his word every day just reading his word and loving his word and being a part of it and understanding it, and letting it speak to our hearts when we're down or when we're excited or when we're just kind of living, the word of God feeds us and helps us and carries us along. And when it comes right down to it, all of that is meant to be a part of the discipleship process. Why? Because his word is what brings discipleship. So the disciples expose themselves to the word of God. They expose themselves to to living the word of God. They didn't understand all the while, all the time, why they made the changes they made. In fact, they had a million questions for Jesus about what happens if we give up our houses and lands and follow after you. What happens, Jesus says, there are no regrets if you follow me. Follow me, I'm better than the houses, I'm better than the lands. Just follow after me. And every young, every young disciple has those kind of questions. Well, what do you mean? Wait, wait, hold on a second. What do you mean if we follow after Christ and, and, and try to follow or model our entertainment based after him? What do, we, what do you mean if we try to model our, our, our lifestyle after Jesus? What does that look like? What do we have to do without? All those questions are fully understandable. But that's what a disciple does. They just follow after Jesus. And here Jesus is giving his, exposing his disciples to the opportunity to follow after him. So, preacher, how do we live it? Well, we live it in honesty, and we just follow after Jesus. We know his word. We obey his word. We confess our sins to Jesus Christ and because we're going to make mistakes. We're going to foul it up. We're going we're to sin, and we confess those to the Lord, and he cleanses us by his good grace. We follow example of other Christians before us, and we abandon and flee from sin. This is what the disciples did. One day they understood Jesus clearer than they had ever understood Him when He was teaching them face-to-face. And that's what happens in the life of believers today. But the great threat to the believer is this, that we miss out on what Jesus says here in verse number 1. You remember the central idea of this text, as I told you just a moment ago. The central idea is in chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God believe also in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. You see, what Jesus was saying to those disciples that day is, you have faith in God, take that same faith and put it in me. Now, he's not talking about, hey, believe in me, I'm going to come through for you. Hey, if you put a little faith in me, uh, you know, you you can believe in God and you give me a little bit of that. No, no, no. He's saying, listen, take all the faith that you have had in Jehovah God, that, once, that you've believed in since you were a small child, and I want you to give me that faith. You believe in God. Now, the way you believe in God, believe me. We live in a culture that is perfectly comfortable with believing in God. In fact, the latest polls say that the majority of Americans believe there is a God. Of course, it's a big, long range, isn't it? That's people who believe in God, they follow after Jesus Christ, they are his disciples, and they're just fully on, totally on board following Christ. And then people over here who say, yeah, I know there's a God, but I don't know if he's doing anything. I mean, he's kind of hanging out, maybe there's a God. And that's a full ray right there, right? He says, listen, you have put your faith in God. You know there is a God. You go out soul when you go out and talk to friends. Man, preacher, don't you worry. Don't you worry. I believe in God. I didn't ask you if you believed in God. I asked you to you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Nope, nope, preacher, don't you worry. I'm one of those guys. I've told my whole family, I believe there's a God. Okay, great. You believe in God. That's that's awesome. All the demons do that too. That's that, By the way, they hate it when you say that. The reality is is that when it comes right down to it, believing in God is nothing special. There's a lot of this creation that believes there's a God. The question is, what will you do with Jesus? Jesus says, take all of the value, all the truth, all the trust that you have in God, and I want you to place that on me now, because I am him. You believe in God, now you get to believe in me. And when you are God, you get to lay claim to that kind of belief, don't you? You know what's happening in in American culture today? That's being attacked. But sadly, it's being attacked in the weirdest ways possible. It's being attacked in churches. See, there are two great other ideas that are trying to vie for meaning in, in life. One of them is religious pluralism. Religious pluralism is the idea that you can take one idea and then you can add all the other ideas to it. That's religious pluralism. It says, "Well, you believe in Jesus. Oh, and you can take and sample a little bit of this from this religion. You can take a couple of these things from this religion. You can take this religion over here, and, and you can have a little bit of this. and And this is this is what scares me when I see churches that offer yoga classes. And you get the it, it's it, it's taking from one religion over here and putting it in this religion." Over here, and it's taking this idea and this idea and this idea. And you know what? By the way, if I could just throw up a big red flag right here, can I throw a warning out right now? It this is so prevalent in churches today, it is alarming to me, and it's even creeping into independent Baptist churches, and it breaks my heart. In worship, in worship today, one of the great uh, compromisers of churches. Is their music? And, and by the way, I, I know we've had an argument against churches with with rock music forever. We are so past rock music. I would go. I would do anything to go back to churches that had rock music in them. I really would because it's so much safer than what's in churches now. And now we we live in a culture where the biggest name in churches, biggest name in the churches, they are thirty thousand people and better. And these churches are massive, and they're influencing all the little churches that are following them. And there's this movement in churches to introduce things that have no place in Christian worship. And they say things like, be still and know that I am God, and then they lead their congregation in these breathing exercises, and they lead their congregation in, this, in these mantras, and they lead their congregation, and then they take and sample music, and their music samples aren't Christian ideas at all, and they'll take samplings. In fact, I, I was reading a study yesterday and listening to this guy describe what goes on in these churches, and he was saying the biggest concern he has is that music is Christian music now is sampling from Sufi religion. Those are Islamic pagan religions, and they are sampling the music beats and styles from those Sufi religions to get your heart in the same syncopation as they do when they're worshiping Allah in Islamic worship in a different country. And what is that? All, All of it is the mixture of this weird idea that all religions are equal. You can find God in any of them. As long as you feel good spiritually, you're okay. All of it is heresy. In fact, it's beyond heresy. We're at apostasy now. We are in full-blown apostasy. We should have won the war over music in the church in the 80s. We didn't, and here's where we're at. We are at full-on apostasy. Don't, please don't take it lightly. If you're online, you go to one of those churches, please, please, please see the red flag. I'm waving it. Please get this. We cannot allow the world and its, its idea that all roads lead to God, and it'll be okay. You'll figure it out. You're all gonna get there. We have these mega church pastors who lead these massive congregations, and they get on daytime talk shows and say stupid things like, yeah, I know. Not all roads lead to God, but you know all roads probably lead to Jesus. You just don't know how this experience over here is going to turn their attention to. It is garbage and it is flooding the Christian church. And if you don't think it's touching Christian books and Christian music, you're out of your mind. We are in a deluge of of apostasy. And it is waving at us day after day after day. And what needs to happen is not another group of Christians who are really in tune with the newest popular teacher or the newest popular music or even in tune with me. Don't get in tune with me either. What we need is a great group of believers who will stand up and say, I want one thing and one thing alone. It's Jesus all the way. And if we would get a congregation of people that just fell head over heels in love with Christ, loved nothing else in the world, and just said, I want Jesus, then we'd probably have some protection for our soul. The problem is, is Christianity has moved so far towards relativism and so far towards we want everybody in. What we have done is we have excluded the very Savior who died for us. My friend, we, can't, we cannot afford to do it. it we, we are losing and we are losing it in apostasy. And there are independent Baptist guys who should know better, who are letting the music in and letting the worship style in, and they're thinking nothing of it. They think Christian music, Christian music, Christian music. And what is happening is we are introducing the same kind of just creepy doctrine in. And before long, we'll not even ever be able to identify the Christian from the man who put... who put. Uh, Allah first, or the man who put uh, the, the the Sikh religion first. Now, there'll just be no division between us, and you won't even identify one who puts Christ on Christ alone. My friend, the job of the Christian is to be one who puts Christ and Christ alone. He says, I am the way. If you believe in God, believe in me. You put your faith in God, put that same faith in me now. The second danger in today's culture is, is secular humanism. Secular humanism. And what's sad is we live in a Christian atheism today. The atheist says, I'm going to do it my way. I don't need God. I'm going to do it my way. And we live in a culture where Christians have the same exact attitude towards the Lord. We have the same attitude. I'll pick and choose. I I want a little bit of your word. I'll take the love and the mercy and the peace. I'll take those parts, but the part I don't like, I'm going to leave that out. You know, this weird thing about dying to self and and really crucifying the flesh, all that. No, that's not for me. I'll take this and this and this and this, and we're piecemealing out the Bible as if we get to pick and choose the parts that we like, and God will completely ignore it. And I tell you today, this secular humanism where the main goal, the main drive is to make the Christian happy is not life. It is steering us away from it. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. If you think you're going to find life outside of him, you're nuts. It won't happen. The problem with every one of these, you think about how our world views the Lord, how our world views life. Voltaire once said, we men are tormented atoms in a bit of mud devoured by death a mockery of fate the world this theater of pride and wrong swarms with sick fools who talk of happiness who's a bit of a nihilist the idea is, is that this world, you know, we, we, we'll do this and this. And we're all trying to find some happiness. Voltaire said, you'll never find it. You might as well just live the life you want now. And, and, and you'll not find it in religion. You're not going to find it over here. We're all basically in the same primordial sludge. Just live your life now. There is, there is nothing, there is no room for pleasing self in the Christian culture. There, there is no room for the Christian and the church to hold hands with those who just say, I want, I'll take Jesus because he makes me happy. I want Jesus because he adds to what I've got going on. I'll take Jesus and I'll hold hands with him on Sunday and i will go do everything else I want to do Monday through Saturday. My friend, Jesus didn't come here to make you feel better. That is the opposite of what Jesus came for. Jesus said, I came to bring division. It didn't come to make you happy. It didn't come to make you comfortable. You say, well, wait a second. Jesus promises peace and love and joy. No, no, he promises those as byproducts of being made right with a holy God. He never made that promise that he comes to give you joy. He comes to give you your best life now. That's not even in the Bible for crying out loud. He came to cause division. He said, I brought a sword. I came to cut and make a division between my people. What was he doing? He was saying, I'm trying to divide between the people who want me and me alone from anything else. Christian, there's only one hope in this life. and He is the way to eternal life. And he is the truth. He's the one who divides in life what is right and what is wrong. And when it's all said and done, He is the one that gives meaning to life. My friend, you know him if you know Christ as your Savior. I just want to remind you that your wonderful Savior, he is still all of those things, and no one has taken one of those from him. He still stands as the way, the truth, and the life. And the greatest thing that can happen in the life of a believer today is that they would acknowledge it, recognize it, and push anything out of their life that would ever challenge it.